is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever, because it was just that. And we're following Lewis and Clark and their group of men called the Corps of Discovery along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our 22nd feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. Last episode, the Corps of Discovery were in desperate need of food. So in the middle of this harsh Dakota winter, they sent out a hunting party who would end up being the ones hunted, ambushed by the Lakota Sioux Indians, much of their food taken, their dignity taken, and yet they kept an exposed hunting party out there in the wild. Several of the hunters went out early, hunting. They didn't have much of an option. And as for the meat that they did get to bring back in only a matter of days, William Clark reports. Our store of meat is out today. As good American men do, they preferred meat for subsistence, but... Preferences are luxuries in times such as these. Scarce times that make you think. The founder of Cancer Treatment Centers of America, Dick Stevenson, says, Scarcity is the greatest friend of innovation. Immediate problems make you find solutions. Visited by several of the Mandan Indians today. Our blacksmiths are much engaged, mending and making axes for the Indians, for which we get corn. The blacksmith crew, they've set up a, a blacksmith works right outside the fort. The blacksmith works are working day and night. You get the sense of uh, uh, working overtime. We're listening to Clay Jenkinson, the editor of the Lewis and Clark periodical, we proceeded on. Uh, because they're manufacturing these ceremonial axes for the Mandan and to a certain degree for the Hidatsa. And when Clark has gone on that long hunting trip, Lewis goes into great detail about this and says uh, they have a bad design. It's not, it doesn't, it's not lethal. It, it, it's not well balanced. Who knows why they want these, but, says Lewis, they do want them. And we have some pieces of metal that we can no longer really use. It's important for us to remember that Native Americans of the continent were metal starved. They didn't have metallurgy. And one of the things that white people had that could be produced in no way in the Indian world was metal objects. So we can have shields. The Corps' resident blacksmith, John Shields. Manufacture these ceremonial axes for the Native peoples, and in exchange, they bring corn and squashes and sunflowers and, and other things that we need to eat. In his book, Undaunted Courage, Stephen Ambrose writes, Working as hard as they did in such extreme cold weather, the men ate prodigiously, 6,000 calories or even more per day. A modern athlete seldom consumes more than 5,000 but the calories the men were getting in 1805 contained very little, if any, fat. 
Consequently, no matter how much they ate, the men were always hungry. It was Mandan corn that got the expedition through the winter. Had the Mandans not been there, or they had no corn to spare, or they had been hostile, the Lewis and Clark expedition might not have survived the first winter. Meriwether Lewis never put it that way, and in fact, probably never thought of it that way. Back to Clay Jenkinson on Lewis's perspective on all of this. He says at one point, he's a little uneasy about manufacturing weapons for Indians, that that's not really Jefferson's philosophy of the thing. There's a kind of a Star Trek feel here, you know, do them no harm, don't don't arm them, don't increase their likelihood of engagement in, in war. And so Lewis says, this doesn't really represent our civilization in the way that I think Mr. Jefferson would want us to appear to the native peoples, but we need the food, we have the metal, that's what they want, it's Adam Smith. They want those axes, they see the metal. If we manufacture them into these into these ceremonial weapons, they'll give us the the vegetable produce which supplements our diet and, and, and keeps us healthy. So Lewis comes to terms with this. Ambrose notes the example of a Hadatsa Indian warrior who came to purchase an axe and to obtain permission to attack the Sioux and Arikara Indians. For the proper price in corn, the axe was handed over, but the request to use it was denied, and the Hadatsa chief must have wondered to himself what sort of man would sell arms to a warrior and then tell him not to engage the enemy. And there you have it, and a great job, Alex. And again, we do this, well, as long as we can. We're going to take the whole trip along. We're going to follow the diaries of the men who led this epic road trip. It's Lewis and Clark, and as always, well, Clay Jenkinson does such a great job for us, and you can find out all that he does at clayjenkinson.com. And one day, one summer soon, I'm going to go out there and just hit that trail with Clay because I know I'll learn more about this story in that way, and he leads some tours himself. He's also the host of the Thomas Jefferson Radio Hour, a whole weekly show dedicated to Thomas Jefferson. And yes... He deserves it. This is Our American Stories, the most epic road trip ever. 22 feature stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Catch the other 21. If you're on a long trip, pop them all in. Let the family listen. It doesn't get better than this, folks. The founders of our country, the adventurers of this country that made it what it is today. This is Our American Stories. The Lewis and Clark story continues.
the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. This is Our American Stories, and our next story is a story about love and family, faith and freedom. It's brought to us by our own Greg Hengler and the good folks at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center in Church Creek, Maryland. Let's take a listen. On July 4th, 1776, a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived. With a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, its noble, if imperfect, parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, Deep within the backbone of the American economy, a large protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves the dollar value of slaves was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together. Slavery was no sideshow in American history, it was the main event. Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educators' list of evildoers. Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. That ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government. That slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America. So that when you think about people running away or people striking out against the institution, they are embarking on a pretty ambitious uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like grape nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman's scholar, James McGowan. There was an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads in the, uh, started in this country. Uh, some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, he the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. 
when the uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like they, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked at the Underground Railroad. In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus. Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s, called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher. There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality, and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel. As a part of that Great Awakening, more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings. In the end, enslaved Americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master, but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom. As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes. And I prayed to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for ever since. Harriet Tubman, we all know her name, but who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20 by 20 foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect and fear and saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. 
after getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches. Name your price. In 1849, Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her. I don't know, Edward. She don't look too healthy to me. In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted. So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never gonna change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. Edward, let me help! Edward! Edward! The prayer proved prophetic. Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more. There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. And we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. 
after an initial attempt to escape failed when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return. She set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north through the Underground Railroad took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made my way out of slavery and into the promised land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back, for my beloved, for my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that dream, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends and friends of friends back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track and I never lost a passenger. Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasiah, and her two children, a son and an infant daughter, who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kasiah's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day. Kasiah was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps. The bidding started. Kasiah's husband, John, stood in the crowd. Their eyes met. And John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. John won the bid, but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more, he forgot to chain Kasiah up. Psst, now go, go. Kasiah, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. 
they eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves, to whom she had sent messages, to meet her eight or ten miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, and because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs. And Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said, I was going to lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We've got to move on. Remember, Henry, dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, (laughs) he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody. Henry made it to freedom. And years later, Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee. Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down. Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad. The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. You hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope. Even though we enslaved chained, whipped. Hope still lives. She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field. When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory. I heard God speaking to me, saw his angels, and I saw my dreams. 
there were times I knew things for they was going to happen. I could see trouble coming and I could go the other way. There was times I fell into sleep but was completely awake. More aware than when I was awake. Things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Stories. final segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off. In one instance, in 1856, the word spread through the countryside, she's here! And four young men answered the call. What you men want is a bounty hunter. As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods... Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold. And I said no such thing as too cold and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder. But then I came out the other side. The boys followed. Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent, General Tubman as we call her. 
Here's Professor of Constitutional Law, Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh, what they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God. It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail. Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett. When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing. She needed places to stay. She needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact. Thomas Garrett had money. He had social position. And as a result, he was given Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and clo- as well as clothing and food. He would tell this story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, well, I know you've got money for me because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, well, how do you know I got money for you, Harry? And, you know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he, he would have it. God bless you, Garrett said this of Harriet. I had never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10, 1913, the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn, She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. 
Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public, and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women whom you have let out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great-great-grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by the slave owner. Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved, and she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her, everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, you know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps. It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have been able to form alliances cross-racial lines. The fact is that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do, because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there is a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people. And I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Roll, Jordan, roll, my soul will rise in heaven, Lord, for the year when Jordan rolls. Everybody say roll, 
our American stories and on this day we're celebrating not just our country but we're also celebrating those who've chosen to come to America in spite of political and geographic barriers. We're going to hear a story from Faith and we've been sending her to the Villages, Florida for some time now, a retirement community with over 150,000 residents. Residents from every type of background. On her most recent trip she talked to a woman named Sylvia. Sylvia starts out talking about why she originally didn't want to move to the villages. My name is Sylvia Lawrence. I used to be Sylvia Galova. How did you end up here? My husband, uh, he was on a church choir, and somebody on a church choir was talking about the villages. Villages, oh, you know, this and that. And uh, my husband described that to me, and I said, oh, but I don't like any kind of rules. I don't know if I would like that. You know, it's seems it's too rigid. I hate dogmas. I can't stand that. Yes, I'm always opposed to any rules. Sylvia is very different from most of the other villagers I've talked to since I've been there. You may have noticed her thick accent. But one of the important things she mentioned was not liking rules. Why is that? Sylvia escaped from communist Czechoslovakia after the Soviets had invaded her country in 1968. But the initial communist invasion started when she was very young. In 53, the communists absolutely confiscated everything. Uh, my, all, my family owned um, lots of properties, restaurants, uh, stores, uh, cars. I remember as a four-year-old, five-year-old, I don't remember now exactly, uh, watching the commissars coming uh, and taking our cars. My grandma had this huge black car. She had a chauffeur because she didn't know how to drive. Uh, Then my father had this sports car, (laughs) the English sports car, and my mother had just a plain, uh, you know, middle-sized car. But the commissars came and took all three cars. And I remember as a child watching from the window and saying, hmm, I wonder where they are taking that. But uh, I remember as a child, the commissars would come at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning uh, and looking for stuff, uh, you know, jewelry, uh, pictures, uh, fur coats, and they would just confiscate that. It didn't mean much to me then, but, and my grandma used to say, uh, she lived with us, ah, it's just stuff. I'll make more money and buy you stuff. (laughs) I grew up. Uh, and went to school, I was ostracized because I was from the rich family. They, and the teachers would say to me, you are no good. And I, I remember thinking, why? What did I do? 
and I couldn't comprehend that I'm not good because I, I, I am from a former rich family. But again, my grandma always stood by me and she said to me, whatever you have in your head, the communists cannot take away from you. Be the best you can be. Reach for the stars. And that's what I did. I was, I, I, hard, I worked very, very, very hard in school. And uh, I did well. Um, my grandma was a very big influence on me and she's been dead for 43 years, but there is not one day that I don't think about her. Then things began to change, seemingly for the better. Then around 66, 67, the situations became a little bit better. We used to have a little bit of a freedom, for example, freedom of press and freedom of expression. And it was all thanks to the president, who was Dubček, D-U-B-C-E-K. And he didn't want us to stop being a communist country. All he really wanted, a little bit of freedom. But in August 21, uh, 1968, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, and the news was don't panic, stay indoors, the Soviet invaded your country. We were in total disbelief because we did not believe we did anything wrong. All we were asking was for a little bit of freedom. But the Soviets, our Soviet army came and invaded Czechoslovakia. They also invaded Poland. How old were you? Uh, I was 18. So Sylvia and her mother knowing and experiencing the evils of communism, decided to plan their escape, which was no easy task. That was it for me because I felt there is no future for me anymore. You know how 18-year-old, we are sort of, at that time, I think I was selfish. I only thought about myself and I just was very forceful. I said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to escape. And at that time, because of the Soviet army, and you know, nobody really was guarding the borders and nobody really knew what they were doing. However, the old rule was that before you can leave Czechoslovakia, you need a permission from the Minister of Interior um, Affairs. And then you needed a visa to go to country of your choice. So, Okay, we, my mother and I went to the Minister of Internal Affairs and stood in line with our passports, and all of a sudden, somebody shouting, the Soviets are coming, the soldiers are going to be here. If they f- catch you with your passport, they're going to take you, and maybe you'll end up a couple days in jail. My mother said, let's don't run outside, let's go and run and hide in the building. We went in a cellar, and uh, I spent a whole night just huddling in a cellar with my mother. Uh, Luckily, I was (laughs) young and very skinny, so in the morning, we still didn't want to use the front door to exit, because they were going to ask us, you know, what were you doing here this early in the morning? So there was a tiny little window in the cellar room. So I crawled through it, and my mother was always tiny, so she she fitted uh, through the window too. 
and we just pretended like, you know, we are on a stroll here. So we were not stopped, and we kept our passports. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of Sylvia and her mom's escape from communist Czechoslovakia. More after these messages, Faith's visit to the villages, and Sylvia and her story, again here on Our American Stories. our American stories and we continue with Sylvia's story in the last segment we learned about her her hatred of rules and where it came from we learned that quickly and how Czechoslovakia notice how they vilified the wealthy first because then the rest of the folks could hate the wealthy but then it was the upper middle class then it was the middle class and pretty soon the communists had confiscated everything so when you hear the one percent getting vilified just remember what's really going on but let's go back to the story and to Sylvia's story and faith at the villages. I cannot imagine how scary that must have been, but they were determined to still flee from the country. However, her grandmother was not fit to take the trip. So after the night of staying in the cellar, Sylvia and her grandmother had an important conversation. We came home, and at that time we were living in an apartment that had a very long, dark hallway. And my grandma was on one side, and, you know, as an 18-year-old, I'm saying, Grandma, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I cannot live here anymore. And my grandma turned around and said, yes, that's a good decision. And I, I said, why isn't she saying something? Why isn't she saying, don't go? Or, you know, and I think she was crying because she wanted me to go. And that was the hardest, hardest happening to me. And your grandmother, she, you said she was crying. Was that because... She knew you needed to go. I think she she felt it's better for me if I leave. But of course, she was the one who raised me because my mother worked at the university. And like I said, my father was arch- architect, always working somewhere else. Uh, so I was raised by my grandma and we were extremely, extremely close. But I think she felt for me to have a better life is to let me go. And I never saw her again. I think she was just totally unselfish because I think if I would have known that she was crying and that she didn't want me to leave, perhaps I wouldn't have left. But she, she hid that from me because she wanted me to go. She wanted me to have a better life. And the communist regime actually fell but 19 years later. So... You know, I was 18 when I left, but to living under the communism for 19 more years, 
I don't think that was acceptable for her or for me. What are other things that you remember your grandmother telling you? <laughs> she always told me to make friends with smarter people than I am <laughs> because you can always learn from them. My grandma was an extremely strong woman who would never let herself be defeated. You know, no matter what came, what the communists dealt, you know, they took her two stores, her two beautiful restaurants, her apartment building complex that she had. They took our home where I was raised, and it never faced her. She said, that's okay. I'll, I'll make more money and we'll, we'll have something else. The example she gave me was the one and I'm still living by it because she was an outstanding woman. And I'm really happy that I had somebody like that in my life. Too bad my sons never met her, but I've been telling them the stories about her. So <laughs> I hope something stuck. She always said, you see the stars there? Reach for them. And when I, you know, she always asked me, what do you want to be? You know, what do you want to study? And she always said, it doesn't matter. Whatever you study, it will be okay. She would never say, you cannot be a doctor or you cannot, um, you know, do this. She would say, oh, go get the stars. You know, they can take your jewelry, you know, but they cannot take whatever you have in your, you know, your brain. They cannot take that. So basically she was telling me to learn every day of your life, life, just learn, learn, learn. So after saying goodbye to her grandmother, Sylvia and her mother took their chances for a better life and headed toward the border, not knowing what would happen to them. So we left, my mother and I left, and uh, to this day, I do, and we went by train, and to this day, I don't know how it happened, because the Soviet soldiers came and questioned everybody. And I spoke Russian because everybody had to, in schools you had to uh, take Russian as a second language. But to this day, I don't know what I was saying to that soldier, but he let us go. So. I don't know what happened, but we ended up in Vienna, Austria. We had absolutely no money. We had absolutely nothing to where to stay or how to feed ourselves. <laughs> so um, we went to a convent. We also spoke German because that was my third language that I had to take. And they said, okay, you can stay with us, but you have to work for your uh, food. And <laughs> it was really funny because I was, all my young adult life, I was such a spoiled <laughs> child. I never, I never cooked, I never did dishes, I never cleaned floors or washed clothes. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm working, <laughs> you know, cleaning floors for my food. <laughs> but I did it, you know, because uh, I always felt you have to do what you have to do. And so we stayed uh, in a convent for eight and a half months, uh, working for our lodging and for our food. And the nuns were very, very kind to us. Of course, the work was hard, 
but the food was good. <laughs> the nine months in Austria were very, very difficult, very difficult. And it, not even the food or the lodging or whatever, it was the what will happen tomorrow. Not knowing was, was really, really difficult. You know, I was 18, but my mother was 48, and it was extremely difficult for her because she left, you know, her her job at the university, her friends, and um, she had a harder time learning the foreign language, right? She was older. She was older, so it was very difficult for her. So not only my grandma sacrificed herself, but also my mother. Of course, they could not stay at the convent forever, so they first attempted to get into the U.S. After eight and a half months, I, uh, we were trying to immigrate to U.S., but the U.S. did not recognize us for political asylum. So uh, they said, well, you have to go to a, like, something like a work camp and wait there. So my mother said, I'm not going to do that with an 18-year-old girl. So at that time, the Canada opened the borders, and they, would work, they were welcoming immigrants. Uh, so uh, that's what we did. I, we ended up in Montreal, Canada. And at that time, the Montreal was a little bit separatist. Uh, however, uh, I didn't speak English, and I didn't speak French at that time. They said, the immigration said to us, if you start taking French lessons, we are going to pay you $25 a week. My goodness gracious, $25 a week to me was like a million dollars. <laughs> so I gladly said, oh yeah, I will learn French, no problem. So all we had to do is just show up downtown. They had buses for us. They took us to school where we had French speakers teaching us. I spent four and a half months every day learning French. So after the four and a half months, I was quite fluent. <laughs> so now she lived in Canada and got a very special job. She was able to become a tour guide for an expo called Man and His World, giving VIP tours, even giving tours for the Czechoslovakian section. But because she had fled the country illegally, she needed a bodyguard, just in case someone wanted to take her back to the country. And when we come back, the rest of the story, the rest of Sylvia's story, and I had to fight back tears listening to her account of Grandma just holding it back and sending her little girl off. What an act of love. And just a beautiful, beautiful story. And by the way, a little history lesson for those of us who don't know the ravages of communism and bad government. More of Sylvia's story, Faith's story at the villages after these messages.
This is Our American Stories. And Sylvia and her mother had arrived in Canada, and they'd begun their new lives. But how is it that she got into the United States? Let's return to the story. In the fall and spring, she went to school and worked at Man in His World during the summer, which is where she so happened to meet her man. One day, after a really hard day, I had lots of VIP tours, I was sitting at the end of the pavilion minding the guest book. You know, that was like, can relax now. All of a sudden, I see this tall, very, very, very handsome guy staring at me. And, you know, I, I was used to it. You know, guy, I had uniform and, you know, and uh, so this guy comes and starts speaking English. Uh, I said, I don't understand English. So he starts communicating with his hands and he said he would like my address because he wants to send me a postcard from Pittsburgh. So I did that. Three months later he came back. I saw him one more time, so three times altogether, and I married him. I didn't speak English and he didn't speak French. So. I'm still married to him 46 years later and three sons. Now I speak English. (laughs) So, but we are are together, we are happy, and uh, that's how I ended up in America. And I absolutely love America. I think America is the best country ever. I'm very, very grateful that I I had such an opportunity from a little Slovak country. to come here and enjoy uh, everything America has to offer. I made sure that three of my sons, that my sons, three of them, we travel extensively because I wanted them to know different cultures and different people. And, but every time we would come back to US, I would tell him, get on your knees and thank God that you were born in this country. So you married someone after seeing them three times? Yes. Were I'm not sc- really speaking. Were you scared? Of course, of course. Why'd but you do it? The the hardest part was already done. The hardest part was was leaving the country. I thought after that I can do anything. You were married and you didn't know English. Right. I mean what was that like? That was funny because we were still having arguments. <laughs> My husband he would force me into speaking English. He would give me these uh, jobs, like call the water company and ask them about how many gallons do we use a day or something like that. And I would sit by the phone with a stomach ache, but I would still do it. And it wasn't easy, he would take me to parties and I, I, I just didn't know how to speak to people. Uh, the people would say, oh, you are, she must be really stupid because she's sitting in a corner. But it was because I didn't speak the language. You know, that's a human nature. If they don't understand something, maybe you don't really find out what's going on. Yeah, that's true. It's easier that way. Experiencing what she had, Sylvia wanted to make sure her sons understood what it means to live in America. She made many sacrifices when she fled. And although we know that she left her grandmother back home, 
She also left her father. My father, uh, my father was an architect, but his heart was broken because he was an artist also, and he wanted to build colorful buildings with lots of windows, and of course that was not permitted in, in the communist regime. So I never really knew him as well uh, because he was always gone as a punishment. I, I didn't see him when I was leaving, so I didn't say goodbye to him. And uh, the communication between my grandma and my father was very sketchy, very seldom because we were afraid that if they get letters from U U.S. or Canada, they will be punished. But then I found out that he was uh, seriously ill with cancer. So I called the hospital and I explained the situation that I'm his daughter and I am living in the U.S. And I asked the doctor who was uh, taking care of my father if he is okay with me talking to him because he could, the doctor could be punished by allowing somebody from U.S. talking to his patient. But he said, no, I will, I will let your father talk to you. Uh, but my father was, I guess, in so much pain and not really, he didn't understand what was going on because I said, hello, father, this is your daughter. And he said, I have no daughter. And that was the last I heard from him. He died two weeks later. So, uh, you know, life is not, not easy, but uh, that's the only life we have, so we have to make the best out of everything that happens to us. He didn't even remember her. Although she left for a much better life, and indeed got one, that did not mean that leaving was easy. So, what exactly are Sylvia's thoughts towards those who may not appreciate the U.S. the way that she does? You see, the, the problem with America, they, they're afraid of, some people are afraid to fail. And why? You, sh you could fail. It, it, if you learn something from your mistakes or from, from your failure, that's okay. Just pick up and start again. And I think everybody here is just, you know, they, they don't want to work hard sometimes. They just want a good job, a lot of money. Well, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you have to work hard. You cannot have money if you don't do anything for it. Well, because for you, failure would have been basically, you know, being caught as you were trying to escape. The worst thing already happened to me, so... What else can happen, you know? Sylvia has had an interesting life, to say the least. And now she has settled down in the villages, Florida. So, what exactly does she do these days? I realize that basically they give you all sorts of opportunities to do this or that, or if you don't want to, that's okay too. And I like that because I love dancing. Again, going back to my grandma. She believed that females must be very graceful. So I started with ballet at age three. I was dancing all my life. So that, that is totally amazing that right now I'm dancing. My son thinks I'm really crazy by doing this, but that's okay. I'm dancing until I, I cannot. 
it always came back to her grandmother, the person who told her to reach for the stars, no matter the circumstance. Thank you, Sylvia. I know this was an emotional story to share. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from the Villages, Florida. And great job as always, Faith. And, you know, you really did get to meet the grandmother. I mean, the grandmother ends up being the star of this piece. I mean, Sylvia is fabulous, but the grandmother, be still my heart. And by the way, the sons that she said never got to meet her grandma, their grandmother. Oh, they, the great-grandmother. Oh, they did. They did in countless and endless stories about their great-grandmother and her grandmother. This is Lee Habib, Sylvia's story, Faith's story, the two of them coming together, total strangers, to learn a little about each other and about the world. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories and you're listening to Jared Reynolds singing a song well if you've been a church into a church of any kind ever Christian or not it's a song you've heard and we love to tell the stories of songs here on our American stories every kind light my fire by the doors we did another brick in the wall by Pink Floyd there goes my life by Kenny Chesney what a story that is And Gimme Shelter, it doesn't get better. How that song was made, how it was recorded. You hear from Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, the whole band, and a singer who does some remarkable background work. A great story. And the story of this song, I Surrender All, boy, is it good. As a public high school art teacher in Sharon, Pennsylvania, Judson Wheeler Van Deventer found himself at a crossroads in 1891. He was an active member of his Methodist Episcopalian church, and his friends encouraged him to enter ministry, but he resisted. He felt that his arm's-length relationship with Jesus Christ 
disqualified him from genuinely professing and preaching faith in his Savior. He was born in December 5th, 1855, to John and Eliza on a small farm in Dundee, Michigan. Although he was raised in a Christian household, he didn't come face to face with Christ until he was 17. After this encounter, he continued to struggle with surrendering his life and trusting in his God. Soon afterwards, in 1874, he began attending a small rural college in Michigan called Hillsdale College, where he studied art. He also studied, taught, and composed music, and throughout his life he would master 13 different instruments. He wrestled with God for five more years, but finally, at a church meeting in East Palestine, Ohio, where he was leading the worship, he came to a conclusion and wrote a song. Van Deventer wrote this, For some time I had struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last the pivotal hour of my life came, and I surrendered all. A new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered down deep in my soul a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart and touched a tender chord. He caused me to sing. The song born in his heart was this song. Of the more than 60 hymns he wrote, this is his best known. In 1896, Winfield Whedon put these words to music. Whedon loved the hymn so much that the words were put on his tombstone after his death in 1908. And as we learn so often in art, collaboration occurs. And here we needed Mr. Whedon to put, well, to put these words and music together. The writer of this song retired to Tampa, Florida, and was a regular professor at hymnology at Florida Bible Institute. One man that was moved by this song, Reverend Billy Graham, who wrote the following account, which was published in Crusade Hymn Stories. Quote, One of the evangelists who influenced my early preaching was also a hymnist who wrote I Surrender All. He was a regular visitor at the Florida Bible Institute in the late 1930s, We students loved this kind, deeply spiritual gentleman, and often gathered in his winter home at Tampa, Florida for an evening of fellowship and singing. And that's the power of song, folks. The music, this music, this one song, this one man, influenced one of the great pastors and spiritual leaders of the 20th century, Billy Graham. Even today, this hymn can be seen and heard in prime time, Here's Oprah Winfrey with her guest, country music star, Faith Hill. I heard from my, my producers that last night in rehearsal, 
that you really can belt out some gospel, right? Um, and the song you were singing during rehearsal just happens to be one of my favorites, because I'm going to tell you why. Well, have a seat, y'all. When I wanted to be in the color purple, which is now, it's, it's 20 years ago, I wanted to be in the color purple. Mm -hmm. And I had auditioned for the color purple, and I, two months later, I call back and they say, well, no, we have real actresses. We have real actresses who've auditioned for this part. And I was so hurt, and I was, you know, very much overweight, and I had been praying and praying and praying and praying to get this role. And after I heard that other people, real actresses, I thought it's not going to happen, and I thought it's because I'm fat, and it's because I thought this was the moment for me. So I go to this fat farm, this health retreat, <laughs> to try to lose 50 pounds in two weeks. So I'm there, and I said to God, I said, God, this is too heavy for me. This, this is too much. I've wanted it. I've become obsessed with it. I want this role so much. So I go out on the track, and I start praying, and I say, I don't think it's going to happen, God. I really don't think it's going to happen for me. But will you take it, take this from me, this obsession, this desire, this thing that I, I feel like I can't go on unless I get this role. And I started singing, I Surrender All. Wow. I started praying and singing. I started going around the track singing, I surrender all. And I prayed, and I sang, and I prayed, and I sang, and I prayed, and I sang, and I cried. I prayed, and I sang, and I cried. And when I finally, you know, there's a difference between praying and then getting mm -hmm. up and taking the prayer with you. Mm -hmm. I prayed until Jesus came down, and he took it. I literally surrendered it. I literally surrendered it. I got up, I left the track, I thought, okay, I can, I can, I can move on now, I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be okay. And I started to turn to walk back into um, the, the, the cafeteria, naturally. <laughs> and this woman comes running out the door and she says, there's a phone call for you, it's Steven Spielberg. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And that was really... That was, that, and that moment was when I came to know what mm -hmm. it meant to surrender versus just kind of talking about it. Right. I got on the phone, and Stephen says, I hear you're at a fat farm. And I go, no, sir, it's a health retreat. <laughs> and uh, he said, if you lose a pound, you could lose this part. And so I stopped at the Dairy Queen on the way. <laughs> But since that time, you know, I Surrender All is one of my favorite songs. I didn't know that. Yes, and I heard that last night during rehearsal, you were singing I Surrender All. I go, that is my song. <laughs> so would you do that for us? Oh, would you do yes. it? Okay. Yes. And this is the power of that song. One African-American Mississippi girl knew it. And a white Mississippi girl knew it. They came from de very different sides of the track in a state torn by race at the time, and they were young. And here is that Mississippi girl singing to the other Mississippi girl, no doubt, both of their favorite songs. All to Jesus I surrender, freely give I will ever I will ever love and trust him 
in his presence daily live all to Jesus I surrender humbly at his feet I bow worldly pleasures Take me, Jesus, take me now. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed. And thanks, Brianna and the students at Hillsdale College for coming up with this beautiful story, the story of a song. Van Deventer, by the way, died in Florida on July 17, 1939. The song lives on forever. <laughs>